The following is a message by Dr. R. Scott Clark of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Almighty God and merciful Father, we are grateful this morning that we do have a faithful shepherd, Jesus Christ, who has laid down his life for his sheep and who has redeemed them, who has earned them, whom you have given to him from all eternity and preserves them and protects them We come to you this morning as those sheep with hearts of thankfulness. We ask that you would teach us from your word by your spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. So we're looking uh, this semester at the book of Galatians, and our passage this morning is chapter 3, verses 15 Through 18, and because time is is so short, I'll just read uh, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. God's word says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies uh, more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Thus far, God's word. May he write this word on our hearts and may he give us true faith to believe it. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a congregation in uh, what we can think of as modern Turkey, uh, southern Gaul, around 49, after 
the Jerusalem Council, but it's a very early epistle, possibly uh, the, the first, certainly one of the first of, of Paul's epistles. And he's dealing with a crisis that would continue to confront the Christian church from this point and had already troubled the, the church uh, obviously prior since they were dealing with it at the council but would continue to confront the church through the uh, 50s and 60s and 70s and, and well into the second century. So this is a, a seminal text in a lot of ways in their own context but also in ours. This text became one of the fundamental texts of the Reformation. Uh, certainly, when I say the text, I mean the book of Galatians. It becomes, with the book of Romans, really the charter of the Reformation. If you look at, at uh, commentaries, Reformation commentaries on Romans and Galatians, there you typically find uh, Protestant commentators at their best expounding the doctrines of the Reformation, the, the crucial doctrines of justification by grace alone, meaning un merited, undeserved favor alone, through faith alone, that is resting, receiving, trusting in Christ and in his finished work alone, uh, and then in Christ alone, the, the uh, only object of saving faith uh, for justification and salvation. Uh, so it's uh, not surprising that all of that comes out of Galatians because the Apostle Paul was addressing those things uh, those very same sorts of questions, really, in, in his own time, that the church confronted later and that we still confront today in our time, so we should pay attention. And what's most interesting, and the thing to which I want to call your attention this morning in our passage, verses 15 through 18, is the unchangeable substance of the covenant of grace. The unchangeable substance. That we don't think in those terms very much anymore in terms of substance. We don't use that word the way we used to use it once upon a time. And, and we used to use it to mean uh, to talk about the, the nature of stuff. We used to think a lot about the nature of stuff. What makes a thing what it is? Some of you have had me for ancient church or more likely uh, medieval reformation have heard me talk about uh, that question that, that troubled the church for, uh, off and on for uh, a thousand years, do we, most of a thousand years, do we call a thing what we call it because it is what it is, or uh, are names just made up and randomly applied? And the church used to think and talk a lot about substances. And I think uh, that here in this text, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on what the church would later call a, a, a substance. There's something about the nature of God's promise to Abraham that tells us a great deal about the nature of his relations to us and about the history of redemption. It's so interesting here as Paul challenges the Galatians, and I know other faculty members have already worked through earlier parts of the chapter, but look how strongly Paul challenges the Galatian congregation using some of the strongest language uh, in, in his epistles. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right? Uh, that Christ was publicly portrayed or placarded as crucified. So he's challenging them because they have gone away from this fundamental truth of the Christian faith that their hope, their certainty rests in Jesus Christ in what he is 
and in what he has done. And they've been diverted from that to thinking something else, quite possibly, yes, something like this, yes, believing in Jesus is certainly good and even necessary, but there's much more to being a Christian than believing in Jesus. And in fact, if you really want to, to have a certainty or to have um, accept, more, more, prob- more probably more acceptance with God, there's a little more you need to do than to believe in Jesus. You need to do, as people are wont to say, even in our time, and sometimes in our circles, there's more you have to do. You need to do, as they say, your part of the covenant. And it's quite, uh, it seems quite likely to me that Paul's opponents, the people about whom he's concerned, these Judaizers who have infiltrated the congregation and corrupted the gospel, the good news, they've done so by turning the good news, as they always do, into bad news. Another way to put this is they've turned the covenant of grace, I will be a God to you and to your children after you, not because of anything in you, not because I foresaw anything, not because you have any quality, not even because there is any particular quality to your faith, which is a temptation to which the church has frequently succumbed. That, that, you know, people, you can get people to talk about faith. You know, you can even get Pelagius, that great heretic, to talk about faith. Did you know that? Pelagius talks about faith all the time in his commentary on Romans. But you know what he does to faith? He, he's not content to leave it just an instrument, an empty hand, as we would say, and I think as Paul teaches, not an empty instrument that trusts whereby the, the power of it comes from the object, but Pelagius, and then after him semi-Pelagius, lots of semi-Pelagiuses, <laughs> would turn faith into a thing that has power of its own. And then they would say, and Pelagius says this, that God looked and saw the quality of the faith. And how many times have you heard that sort of thing. So there's always some uh, corruption. And so here, they, uh, here the corruption is turning the covenant of grace, I'll be a God to you and to your children after you, freely, unconditionally, and received through faith, that is resting and receiving alone. I will, uh, they turn that free covenant of grace, unconditional covenant of divine favor into a covenant of works. And so this is why Paul says in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because the moment you begin to say, well, I have my part to do, then the law says to you, well, you had better do your part perfectly. And then he quotes Deuteronomy, as you know. So how does he nail that argument down in verses 15? What, to what does he add to all of this in verses 15 through 18? Well, he adds to it by turning to the category of covenant, one with which they were very familiar. You remember Peter in Acts chapter 2, what's the first thing, or not maybe the first thing, but one of the thing, most important things he says to those thousands of Jewish men representing all of those households at Pentecost. What's the thing that he that he see, what's the thing to which he appeals to sort of conclude the, the, the sermon, of which, of course, we only have a summary. For the promise is to you and to your children 
and to as many as who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call, Acts 2, 38, 39. What's that promise? It's the Abrahamic promise. It's the promise of the covenant, a covenant of grace, which all of those Jewish men, or with which all of those Jewish men and all of those households represented there, they were all very familiar because they knew it from the synagogue. It was the fundamental charter, really, of their relations with God. And so he appeals to this and he says, now let me, let, let me talk with you about covenants. Let me give you a, a human example. Even, he says, human covenants, not to mention now the divine covenant, but even human covenants are immutable. They cannot be changed. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And you all know you've had now right, Pentateuch or whatever we call that course now. You know about walking between animals. Right, cutting them in half, swearing oaths, may it be to me as it is to these animals, if I break this covenant. So that's the ratification. Once it's been ratified, all right, you put it in a lockbox, you put it under the feet of the gods, as it were, even in the pagan world, and it's inviolable. It's unchangeable. It's immutable. That's the substance. That's the nature of a covenant. It's inherent in the thing it is what it is. Now the promises, he says, now, and I want you to notice, he starts talking about covenant in verse 15 and then he, start, he turns in verse 16 to talk about promises. The kind of covenant he's talking about here is a covenant of promise, which gets us back to Acts 2, for the promise, which is exactly to say for the covenant of grace, right? Same thing in Paul's mind. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, or Offspring, And it doesn't say to seeds, plural, but uh, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And who is that seed ultimately to whom the promise is made? Well, the offspring, the seed is Christ. And, and what's his point here? Well, he tells us very explicitly in verse 17, this is what I mean. When the Mosaic covenant came 430 years, it couldn't possibly have changed. What the Judaizers were implicitly saying is when the covenant made by or through Moses came, everything changed. That, in other words, the Judaizers were saying either implicitly or explicitly, and we just have to make inferences based on what Paul says here, that, well, that was then, but then there was more and things changed. But Paul says that's not true. The Mosaic covenant didn't turn the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. Whatever the Mosaic covenant was, it didn't have the power to change fundamentally the nature of God's covenant with Abraham, which is the which in Paul's mind, and you can see it in Romans, you can see it here, chapter 3, chapter 4, and I would say you can see it in the writer to the Hebrews. The Abrahamic covenant, is, it is what it is, and it's the fundamental, foundational arrangement, really, relative to the salvation of sinners. And it doesn't make, verse 17, it doesn't, the Mosaic Covenant, whatever it is, doesn't make the promise void. He's going to go back and, and explain later what that was, and I'll leave that for, for the, the next one up to explain that to you. But whatever it was, it doesn't change the covenant of grace. That's crucial. You have to get that. That the covenant of grace never changes. It's always gracious. And what is grace? 
Grace is free. Acceptance with God. Unconditional acceptance with God on the basis of the satisfaction by Jesus Christ of the requirements of the law in your place. And nothing that anybody else says or does can change that. Paul's message to them is about an immutable, unchangeable covenant of grace. It is the substance of it is what it is. For if the and then he then he goes to another category in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, then the substance of it really has changed. The nature of the covenant of grace has changed. Then it would be by law, not by grace. But we know that can't be. Right? Then it would no longer be by promise. But now look at this last verse. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. When, Abraham, when, when Paul says promise, when Peter says promise in Acts 2, he means grace. He means free acceptance. How often this week, here we are on Thursday, how often this week have you put yourself under a covenant of works and turned the covenant of grace into a covenant of works? How different are we from the Judaizers? How often... Do we, in our own circles, in some small way or other, turn, without admitting it, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, a free covenant, an unconditional covenant, into a covenant of works of acceptance with God on the basis of our performance? That can't be. It's contrary to the nature of the thing. It is what it is because God has said what he said. And it is what it is because Jesus has done what he did. If it was, and I'll close with this, if it was a covenant of works with us for acceptance with God, then Jesus was wasting his time. But it's been ratified. The covenant of grace has been ratified in Jesus Christ. He didn't just go between the pieces. He became the pieces. For you, that you might be freely accepted with God by trusting in him and in his finished work. God grant you grace today and tomorrow and the next day to keep trusting in that finished work and in the one who did the finished work. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the covenant of grace that you ratified for us, that you sealed with your own blood. May we continue to trust you when we repent this morning and right now of ever having put our trust in ourselves, certainly, or in anything else. We know that the covenant of grace is what it is because you have said what you said and you have done what you've done. And none of those things can be undone or unsaid. Hear our prayer, Lord, grant us grace to trust in that promise and in that finished work and in that covenant of grace and to live according, accordingly as those who have been included freely and unconditionally into your promises, your grace, your covenant, your salvation, for Jesus' sake.
Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.